Chapter Eight of Two Sides to Every Question by Maud Jean Frank. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirsty. A Prize in the Lottery. There was one comfort in the sitting room of Clement House that if its windows looked out simply on a blank wall, the sun did not come in to make it more stifling than it was already. A blessing, by the way, to be only appreciated during the hot, glowing months of summer for in winter its length and breadth was never warmed by the tiny ghost of a fire that smouldered in its grate then it was like entering a vault for the chill dampness struck through and through one especially on a first entry for ourselves we profess a preference for rooms into which the sunshine can sometimes steal even at the expense of a little fading of curtain or carpet brightening with its presence and dispersing all dampness of air and gloominess of temperature since we can shut out those sunbeams at will when they become too demonstrative in their attentions, and it is hard to be without them when they are so much needed. In the hot summer months, however, when the glare of the morning sun was anything but desirable, the dining-room of Clement House was comparatively cool and pleasant. The windows were opened to their fullest extent, and their scant muslin drapery swayed backwards and forwards in the early breeze as it escaped from the open streets and found a passage between the houses. There was nothing inviting in the appearance of the room, the furniture was bare and meagre enough a colonial railed sofa back against the wall a dozen hard wooden chairs also railed a long table stretching along the middle of the room an ugly little square clock noted for its vagaries and over the floor a grey and black patterned oilcloth chilling in the extreme in winter but very pleasant and cool in the hot summer mornings neither was there much to invite the appetite on the breakfast table which one hot sultry morning lay awaiting the appearance of the gentlemen who one after another came from their bedrooms to partake of its fare the thick breakfast china the stale loaf and oily butter the cold shoulder with its plentiful garnishings of parsley the prettiest thing by the by on the table the small dish of half cold half fried chops and a few frizzled rashers of bacon were presided over on this particular morning by therese delaney ostensibly assisted by adelaide while marguerite who declined breakfast altogether stood in one corner of the window making a feeble attempt at learning a lesson she had neglected to prepare the evening previously and on which she had now only a few scant moments to bestow mrs delaney was too much indisposed to rise it was very often the case now it was so pleasant as she said to her friends that she could so well trust her daughters to take her place so in spite of all discomforts of diet there was generally a good deal of laughter and repartee and flirtation as a garnishing to the cold chops and frizzled bacon arthur delta had no taste for either he generally swallowed the morning paper with his coffee neither the blandishments of the fair therese nor the racy wit of her sister proving attractive metal to him but it was certainly not the case with his companions who found it apparently pleasant enough to linger over breakfast to the full extent of the allotted time with two lively girls ready to take full advantage of mamma's absence though for the matter of that she was no great obstacle when present mr macpherson and mr holt were wary with it all they took care to keep within bounds each in his own way enjoyed a flirtation but had no inclination for a breach of promise conclusion to the whole to their own side of the question they had all due regard 
possibly it never occurred to them that there was another side and that it might not be all flirtation on the part of the young girls whatever it was to themselves after all poor girls in spite of their forward manners their little affectations and evident desire to make themselves attractive there were many extenuating circumstances to call forth the pity of a feeling heart their home had never been a happy one long as they could remember their father had always been the slave of an overwhelming passion the love of strong drink he had drained the vitality from his poor miserable body and even in his prime he was left to the drivelling of premature old age no wonder that his daughters had little love or respect to bestow on such a father what too was their mother's life was it not made up of one continual burden of debt and struggle and hardship had they ever known what it was to obtain an object desired in one direction without pinching for it in another it was not strange therefore that with the buoyant hopefulness of youth that ever sees the rosy glow of the future and discerns no cloud the thought of release from this state of things was pleasant to them almost from infancy had they been taught the lesson that to be married was the ultimatum of their lives it involved a house of their own plenty of money and a delightful freedom which of itself was a thing to be desired they forgot poor young things their own mother's unhappy marriage and her long life of unceasing regret or remembered it only to think what a different life they intended their own should be ah youth has bright visions of its future always on before always ready for pursuit and how beautiful and bright they sometimes are we question whether it is well always to dash those rosy dreams with the cold water of what must be and what will be let these inevitable results steal gradually on they will disappoint less and so that the dreams those gay sweet dreams trench not too much on the practical everyday present let them be indulged in till the sleeper awakes to the reality as we all wake and find that indeed it was but a dream yet oh amidst the dreams of youth and the reality of maturity and age for the clinging arms of faith to encircle that cross round which alone is safety amidst the howling of the tempest and the surging of the billows lash wildly as they may and will arthur delta had risen late that sultry morning he was the last to enter the breakfast-room he had passed a sleepless night in his own little hot upper chamber the open window had given him no relief it had only let in an army of mosquitoes upon him and it was not till long past midnight he had fairly turned on his pillow and fallen into heavy slumber he could have slept far into the morning had that been admissible whether or not he would certainly have done so but for a rousing rap at his door that dispelled both sleep and his pleasant dreams together he heard the breakfast bell while he was still at his enforced toilet and voted breakfast a nuisance in such sultry weather if one could possibly get on without eating he said to himself as a vision of cold greasy chop crossed his mental eye now a cup of coffee such as dear mother used to make would really do one good but a feeble essence of burnt beans is more than one can stand this weather but had his coffee cup contained the finest mocha delicately creamed and sugared had the frizzled bacon been transformed into choice venison or other rich breakfast dainties he would have proved as oblivious to the sight and taste as he was to those awaiting him for as he entered the room every eye was turned upon him while to his utter bewilderment a babble of tongues assailed him caleb holt's being audible above all as he exclaimed so your uncle's in luck again delta 
Arthur turned very red and mechanically drew his chair to the table. In luck, he repeated mistily. How so? Hoot morn, said Macpherson in his broadest scotch. You can very well that Mr. Clinton has made an awful lot of money by the mines. That's well known at any rate. Well, yes, he has certainly, Delta stammered, for the hot blood that had sprung through his veins was hurrying back again faster than it came. His suspense was something frightful to endure without betraying himself. Yes, that's well known. It's lucky all he lays his finger on, said Macpherson with emphasis. Caleb Holt came to the rescue in reply to the eager questioning of Arthur's face. It's the shares in that last mining company, the Wheel Ellen, he said in explanation. They have turned out splendidly. They're going up like winking, as well they may since he has anything to do with it. Are you sure of your information? said Delta, with a forced calmness as soon as he could speak at all. The Wheel Ellen was the lottery into which his money was thrown. He trembled in every limb as he waited for the answer. Sure am on here. Read for your son, said Macpherson, throwing the morning paper to him and indicating the important paragraph. I only wish I had had the luck to buy a few shares, said Holt regretfully. But the only company I ever embarked in went to the dogs. I wonder, however, you don't follow in your uncle's wake, Delta. Luck may run in the blood. Ah, sure, and you don't know that Mr. Delta has not done that already. He does things very quietly, and don't let all the world know his business, said Therese insinuatingly. But she insinuated to deaf ears, for Arthur was deep in the report, the wild blood leaping and coursing through his veins like fire. Coffee! What was coffee to him now? This first venture, his very first venture, and that a success! Was there indeed any truth in that random assertion of Holt's that this luck? as they called it, was hereditary. He read the report, though a blinding mist seemed to hover over it, and visions of the future, of future successes, seemed to dazzle and bewilder him. Elsie, his little Elsie, should he not be able to claim her after all? A laugh from Adelaide broke in upon and dissipated his dream. Ah, now, Mr. Delta, you don't mean to say that you're that glad of your uncle's luck? I'll never believe that, she saucily exclaimed. It's yourself now has made the lucky venture, and sure I wish you joy. You are very kind, said Arthur, with a faint smile, as he pushed away his untasted cup and his chair together, and hastily rose. But you have shares in the lucky mine, now haven't you? said Therese coaxingly. Of course he has, said Marguerite, tossing her lesson book to the other side of the room. Come now, Mr. Delta, it's no manner of use for you to deny it, and I shall expect a present for bringing in the lucky paper. You must allow us to drink your health after this, Delta, said Caleb, also rising, for the clock on the mantelpiece was uttering its warning strokes. You are all taking a good deal for granted, a great deal more than the paper warrants, or myself either, said Delta, smiling, for by this time he had reached the door and was ready to go, and taking his hat in another moment he was across the threshold and half down the street. Sultry, was it? Aye, the sun was beating down hotly on the pavement. The roads were parched and dusty. The whole earth seemed a thirst for rain. Not a breath of air to mollify the stifling heat. Deep, salmon-coloured, copper-coloured streaks of cloud lay flanked by dense black masses on the horizon. Towards the sea particularly, and where a sight of that element was visible, it lay glittering under the ominous clouds, clear and distinct 
and angry-looking. Even in the distance one could fancy its surges visible. Thunder and storm and rain were not far off, so said the citizens of Adelaide as they came to the door of shop or warehouse, faintly hoping to get a little breath of coolness from the heated streets. Arthur Delta passed on his way, indifferent to heat or storm, indifferent to drought or rain, only one thought in his mind. Every other was merged in that. His shares had gone up. His venture was a success. He would be rich yet. It takes but little to stir these sanguine natures up to fever heat, so little foundation on which to raise the whole fabric of a future fortune. Arthur Delta's handful of shares were multiplied a thousandfold in that hurried walk to the office. What cared he for the pelting sun's rays? What cared he for the scorching pavement that almost blistered his feet through his thin boots? What cared he for the inquiring faces of friends he never noticed, or strangers he unconsciously jostled in his rapid walk? He was on the high road to fortune, and to Elsie. He entered the office door. He hung up his hat in its accustomed place. He took his seat, and mechanically opened the desk, drawing forth the day-book. It was all done mechanically, for he was away in the clouds, or rather, in the depths of the lucky mine which was to make his fortune. He could not for the life of him have written any other word just then, but shares. A note, sir, from the master, for you, Mr. Delta. The pert little office boy had twice to repeat the words before they met attention. Delta took the note and tore it open. It was to signify his uncle's intention of remaining at home that day, and gave sundry business directions. The conclusion was the only attractive portion to Arthur. So I see there is a little of the Clinton blood in your veins after all. I never knew till lately that you had had the pluck to embark in mining shares. You have chosen well. I wish you joy. Sell out now by all means. Now's your chance. Come, however, to the park tonight, and we will talk it over. It was the first thing Arthur had ever done after his uncle's own heart, and the very first time even a whisper of approval had reached him. If only dear little Elsie could know it. End of chapter 8